There are hundreds of ant species in the U.S. and thousands in the world, and a lot of them are good for their ecosystems. But there are a few species that aren't quite as great for us, and they're probably the ones you're most familiar with. The fire ants, the carpenter ants, the sugar ants, and the field ants. This episode is spurred on by a friend's request to know whether the ants in her garden are harming her plants or whether they're beneficial to the ecosystem. And I think these are valid questions for all of us to know, especially as spring and summer roll around and these little buggers are getting all up in our business. But it also wouldn't be an episode of Go Forth in Science if I didn't nerd out about an insanely awesome part of nature. So we're also going to talk about leafcutter ants, which I first met in Panama in 2016 and are one of my favorite insects. Hi, I'm Kate Harubi, and this is Go Forth in Science podcast, where we combine adventure and science into a tale that will hopefully make the next time you step outside even better. Like most things in our world, there is some good and some bad that comes along with these little bugs. For example, some plants squeeze out a sugary nectar onto their skin, enticing ants near and far to come to the buffet. When these ants are dining on the nectar, they scare off other insects that would normally have swung by to eat the plant's leaves. So it's a win-win. The plant gets protection, and the ant gets a meal. Except when it comes to invasive plants and ants. A lot of the plants that produce this sugary nectar are invasive species, meaning they're introduced into these ecosystems and usually kill off or push out the plants that would normally live there. And the ants that are the best at harvesting this nectar... Yep, they're usually invasives too. So instead of supporting species that would naturally occur in these different places, you've got invasives helping invasives. When it comes to ants that don't belong in the U.S., fire ants are the worst of the worst. They've come north from South America and live in the southern half of the U.S. Most ants, if they bite you, you just get a little bit of a jolt and smack them off your leg. Well, with fire ants, if you get stung, not only is it going to hurt like crazy, but you're getting a nice little pustule in that spot that's going to itch for a while. Like, maybe days. The good news is they only sting you if they think you're threatening their nest, so just stay away from their home, and they'll stay away from you. We do have a lot of ants in the U.S. that are native to our regions. Carpenter ants are a big one, both in overall size and the number of them running around. They're black, brown, and reddish-orange, and can get to be a half an inch long. And when we start talking about their nesting habits, I think you'll find a pattern that comes along with ant names. Often, they're named after what they call home. For carpenter ants, that would be things like hollowed-out tree trunks, stumps, and branches. Or our houses. Carpenter ants are normally a helpful part of the decomposing side of an ecosystem, burrowing their way through wood and helping it break down. So you can see how that's great in a forest, where recycling dead plant matter means it can get used again faster by other organisms. But it's not so great if those carpenter ants have made a home out of your home. Interestingly though, carpenter ants don't actually eat the wood they excavate, just move it around to build their prepper-worthy bunkers. Instead, like many ants, they eat other bugs, human food, and sugary treats nature provides, like aphid butt juice called honeydew. Another common type of ant is the sugar ant, aka the odorous house ant. These ones are on the smaller side and give off a weird smell when squished. Despite what I said earlier about the name thing, though, these little dudes don't actually live in houses. They nest outside, but then come into our homes searching for all those sugary things that grace our 21st century diets. The last of the U.S. ants I want to highlight are the field ants, 
My current land home is in a forested area right next to a field, so you can bet that I have a vendetta against this particular kind of ant at the moment. These ants are also known as thatch, mound, wood, or formica ants, and create towering dirt cones that look like mini volcanoes, usually gracing parks and lawns as well as fields. To build their anthills, these insects move around dirt and debris from surrounding trees or plants, and actually end up changing the makeup of the soil at that spot. Because debris is brought in for construction of the anthill, the dirt around the anthill has a higher concentration of organic materials and nutrients compared to the surrounding soil. When the ants leave the nest for new space to call home, the abandoned anthill is a great place for plants to spread their roots to get to the nutrients they need to grow. Ants spend most of their time in their nests over the winter, which is why they're so much a part of our lives in the spring and summer, but not so much in the colder months. When it's cold out, it's harder for the ants to move. They run around more slowly and have to expend more energy when they do. One ant that does still have to move around in the winter is the acorn ant, a tiny ant species whose entire colony literally lives inside a hollow acorn. But if the acorn is disturbed or parasites and diseases start to break down their home, they have to move to a new acorn, even if it's freezing outside. Scientists have been studying how warming winters from climate change are affecting these tiny bugs. You would think that if temperatures aren't as extreme and the acorn ants can move faster, they'll be safer as they move from one nest to another. And a study completed in 2017 on the running speed of ants at different temperatures found that warmer winters did help these bugs out. Not only were the ants faster when a specific day was warmer, but if the whole winter had been warmer, then the ants were even faster on those warm days. Basically, if the winter is warmer, then when the temperatures do reach above 70 degrees in the spring and summer, the ants are more ready to be active on those hot days. And speaking of active ants, let's travel down to Panama, where leafcutter ants live. My friend Angela and I went down to Panama in 2016 with a lab class associated with our undergrad college. We learned about everything from sloths to reef fish, but after four years, I have to say the one animal we learned about that really stuck in my brain was leafcutter ants. It's probably not the same for Angela, but she's a great friend and ready to go along with most of my whims, so I brought her on to chat about these interesting insects. I am Angela. Kate and I went to college together. We were in the same environmental science program at the University of New England. Then we also took a trip together, which is why we're talking about what we're talking about, to Panama as a class that we both took. Now I am not so much involved in the science world, which makes me kind of sad, but I still do cool things. I am an employment specialist for people with disabilities, but I like to talk about science when I can because it's still a passion of mine. It's just not something I work in anymore. So tell us about our friends, the Panamanian leafcutter ants. So my first introduction to leafcutter ants was in this class on Panama that we both took but we didn't get to see them in action until we were actually there. And then when we were hiking through the forest, somebody who had a machete was like, hey, check it out. There's a whole train of leafcutter ants. You wanna see something really cool? And we were like, uh, yeah, of course we do. We're all science nerds, that's why we're here. So they took the machete and slammed it into the ground. And we watched all of the little leafcutter ants just didn't even interrupt them. They just were like, oh, Okay, they piled up for a second and then found their route back around and then perfectly in line to wherever their nest was. They're all carrying large chunks of leaf, much bigger than they were. They're very cool. 
I like how you casually at the beginning of this were just like a person with a machete. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they were cutting back forest where they needed to when we were hiking through. It made sense. <laughs> the ants went right back to their original line, despite the machete being in the ground, because they have crazy directional skills. They can use landmarks and chemical cues for orientation or the direction of the sun. If those cues are missing and the sun is behind a cloud, though, then they can use the Earth's magnetic field to find the right direction. I know weird things about ant society that I have recently learned, which are very cool. So, like, the different hierarchies and the different jobs that specifically, like, leafcutter ants have, because you think leafcutter ants, so they just cut leaves and they bring them back to their nest, period, end, done. That's not true. There are different types of jobs, and then within one of those jobs, there's a crazy amount of work that they actually do and different roles that they actually do within the cutting. There's the queen, so she's the first one, right? She's the biggest ant in the nest, and she's the only one that can have eggs. And then you have the workers, and there's different kinds of workers. So there's majors, there's mediae, and there's minims. So the majors are the tough muscle. They protect the nest. And then the mediae are a little bit smaller. They're the ones who actually go out, get the stuff, bring it back to the nest. And then the teeniest, tiniest little ones are called the minims. And they're the ones that help protect the eggs, make sure they're doing all right, and then also tend to the fungus gardens. Okay, full stop here. They grow fungus gardens? Yes. Yes, they do. Leafcutter ants don't actually eat the leaves they cut. Instead, they bring those leaves back to their nest and use them to feed fungi they cultivate. Then they eat the fungus. So if you ever thought humans were the only ones to figure out how to grow crops, well, leafcutter ants figured it out too. The foragers have their own jobs within their foraging. So that's the media, the ones that go out, get the stuff. They have a bunch of different actual jobs within that foraging. This is why I think they're agricultural geniuses. They're so cool. They have the different things that they do within the foraging to make sure that they're bringing back healthy things. It's very cool. So like you have your holders who are the ones who are going to hold the leaf while somebody is cutting it. They just kind of like clamp on, they hold it steady so it can actually get cut. Then they have lickers, which I think is hilarious. (laughs) They're not actually like licking it like we would think, but they're like trying to get stuff off of the leaves. They pay attention to the cut edges to make sure that it's going to like keep while they're traveling with it. They have scrapers who scrape off a layer of the surface so that the fungus that they have back in their nest can get to the leaves a little bit easier. They have the cutters, who are the ones that actually, like, cut the leaf. And then they have puncturers, who just bite it. So they, like, make holes. They do it to both sides with their pinchers. And it's kind of like, same with the scraping, is to just make it easier for the fungus to get into it and to use the nutrients from the leaf. Like I said, they're just fascinating because they have all of these different practices they do to make the leaves better for the fungus that they sustain themselves off of. They're smart little bugs. Right. Before learning about leafcutter ants in Panama, I never realized that ants are agriculturists, that they grow their own food. First off, it blew my mind. 
And second off, I was like, oh my gosh, ants are so cool. And there's so much that I don't know about them. And holy crap, they're so smart. So beyond that, right, they're not even just genius agriculturists. They're also incredible architects because you have to think about the energy production that goes into cutting all of those leaves and putting them where they need to be and getting them stacked so they'll be the most effective they can be for the fungus in their nests. So not only are they like trying to figure out what can we do for the fungus, but it's also like, where do we cut? How do we stack? How are we getting it back effectively? Because if you expend too much of that energy, it's almost not worth it. So they have to also think about all of the stuff they're going to do to make it architecturally sound and smart and energy efficient. This leaf cutting process is actually so energy intense that if the ants travel more than 100 meters from the nest, they'll use up more energy collecting the leaves than they would receive from eating the fungus sustained by those leaves. For each square meter of leaves harvested, when all is said and done, the ants complete 2.9 kilometers of cutting, which is 1.8 miles. Imagine that length for a creature that's only a few millimeters long. It also gets harder to cut the leaves as the ants' mandibles wear down, kind of like trying to cut with dull scissors. So the younger ants with the razor-sharp pinchers stay in the nest to do all the scraping and puncturing that comes once the initial leaf is brought back. As mandibles get duller, the ant ventures out into the jungle to make the initial cutting of the leaf. Once the ants' mandibles are so dull that they can't even cut through a leaf anymore, they are the ones to carry the leaves back in their line from the plant to the nest. If you were a leaf cutter ant, what job would you want? What would I want or what would I think I would actually do? (laughs) Answer both. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I think realistically, I would be a holder to just be like, okay, I'm going to hold it really steady and really slow because I'm more of a supportive person. What do I want? A puncturing one because I think that's hilarious that they literally just bite (laughs) and then let go and then bite and then let go. (laughs) I think it's funny. Yes. I think I would be the biter, but I think that I would want to be the cutter. Yeah, the cutting's a cool job, too. This is so good. My friend asked me to do an ant podcast, and I was like, I know no ant (laughs) experts or even bug, like, I don't even know any entomologists. And then I was like, Angela was there when we were learning about leafcutter ants. I can have her on, and she can talk about cool leafcutter ants. And so this was perfect. I will also say I do not proclaim to be an ant expert. I just think they're kind of cool. And when we talked about doing this, I was like, yeah, I'll learn more about ants. Yes, that is perfect. As the audience probably knows at this point, I am (laughs) not an expert about really any of the stuff that I talk about. I just spend a lot of time researching it. But we were both there exploring these ants. So that is what I wanted to highlight. Do you want to promote your social media at all or just stay an anonymous friend of Kate Haruby? I mean, if you want to follow me on Instagram, I'm not that active, but it's Angie C-A-N-G-A-T-S-E-A. Come on over, hang out. I don't post a ton, but I post some. Thanks for coming on. You're welcome. It was fun. Yay! Despite the fact that I definitely nerd out over ants, I will admit that I find them annoying sometimes along with probably most of you listeners. So I figured I'd also put some information in here about how to deter or get rid of ants if they're in unwanted places, like our houses, or if they're invasive. 
Pesticides and insecticides are effective, but they kill off a lot of other animals besides the one you're targeting, and pollute the environment. Throughout my research, I came across a few natural methods of repelling ants, though. Essential oils were a big one. Mint, camphor, eucalyptus, mugwort, turpentine wintergreen, chrysanthemum, forsythia, and cinnamon essential oils are all repellent or toxic to ants. A study in 2015 looked specifically at fire ants and cinnamon and found that if you have a fire ant problem outside, a great way to deal with it was to actually grow cinnamon trees, either outside or inside, and incorporate the leaves into your garden. And let's be real, then you can have a cinnamony smell in your ant-free life all the time, and that sounds awesome. And now for the episode recap. While ants may be annoying at times, they're also useful parts of the ecosystem. They help bring nutrients to the soil around their anthills, protect plant species from other bugs, and help to decompose wood debris in forests and fields. They're also crazy smart and have perfected their sense of direction and agricultural practices over the millennia. It's the invasive species of ants that you have to watch out for. They can protect invasive plant species instead of native plants, and if we're talking about fire ants, they hurt like heck if we get in their way. But if you do have an invasive ant problem, never fear. Just sprinkle some essential oils onto your garden or house or plant a cinnamon tree, and you can repel the ants without having to worry about harmful chemicals. Information in this episode is from Suzanne Copter's book chapter in Ant-Plant Interactions, published in 2017, Christensen and Amalung's 2001 paper, Abandoned Ant Hills, Formica Polyctina, and Soil Heterogeneity in a Temperate Deciduous Forest, Heidi McLean's 2017 paper, Experimental Winter Warming Modifies Thermal Performance and Primes Acorn Ants for Warm Weather, Banks and Srigley's 2003 paper, Orientation by Magnetic Field in Leafcutter Ants, Ryan Garrett's 2016 paper, Leaf Processing Behavior in Atta Leafcutter Ants, and C.L. Huang's 2015 paper, The Insecticidal and Repellent Activity of Soil-Containing Cinnamon Leaf Debris Against Red Imported Fire Ant Workers. Also, a quick public service announcement, I'm going to be switching to posting episodes once a month instead of once a week as life starts to pick up again. So if you have topics or questions for future episodes, you can reach out to me through social media with your ideas. I'm on Instagram at GoForthInScience, on Facebook as GoForthInScience Podcast, and on Twitter at GoForth underscore Science. Thanks for listening.